Hi, welcome to the Brooks Online Gathering. My name is Richie Cable, one of the pastors here at the church. Honored uh, that you would connect with us in this way um, at this moment in time. We've been trekking through the series, Words I Never Said, which is really the formation of some ideas that have been crystallizing over the last uh, month and a half. Week one, uh, we looked at this idea of seasons and time and how some seasons we choose. And if you've been tracking with us, you could finish that. But some seasons we choose and some choose us. Either way, we're supposed to bring the weight of eternity, the weight of the then and there to bear and shape how we exist in the here and now. Uh, week two, we dealt with this idea of truth, that it actually matters. And how we come to understand something as true matters as well. And we should be living in like the space of appreciating and pursuing truth. There's a weight to it that we shouldn't cast off. Truth actually matters. Uh, week three, we dealt with this concept, this idea, which really is a mantra, that joy is resistance. That joy is this deep experience of gladness, not rooted in circumstances. And because God calls us to regularly, courageously, thoughtfully, humbly pursue joy, it's a type of resistance. Because you know, and I know, there, there's a bunch of circumstances that don't produce that deep gladness in us, yet God calls us to rejoice always, to reach beyond the moment, to reach onto something powerful, beautiful, and true, to find strength and gladness in the moments that we find ourselves in. Last week, we dealt with this idea that we are called to do good, that we are called to be people of justice doing all the good that we can as an expression of the love of God in our hearts. And we looked at Jesus's tenderness and we had some prayer points to say, man, let us not be the type of people that inadvertently give cover to evil. Rather, let us be the people that are audaciously clear and demonstratively different like our Lord and Savior Jesus is doing good. It's actually going to be the springboard into the next three weeks, which thematically we're going to kind of survey justice. That there's been a lot of conversations because we know we live in a very polarizing time. And while this isn't a new conversation or a new concept or idea for us, what we have seen is that based on the way the polarization is pulling people apart, we really need to get a handlebar that can guide us well. That we won't be pulled into extreme experiences that actually rob us for the richness that what God would have for us and what God is calling us to do as people of justice. And so today and next week and the week after, we're just gonna kind of step into this space of dealing with this topic, hopefully um, in a way that allows us to be clear and to have handlebars that will move us forward in a more excellent way. Uh, today is going to be a little different though. We're going to deal with this topic of justice today by really dealing with some of the framing questions that we've gotten from you guys. Uh, some of the framing questions regarding this conversation, regarding this time and space, regarding this theme, we're going to answer those um, and hopefully through answering those, again, that we would have a more enriching, excellent pathway forward for what it looks like to be 
the people of God who are just. In fact, the, the first question is, is this, how should we think about justice? That's a fair question. It may seem basic for some, but let, let me answer it starting like this. Every single person has what is known as a historic cultural location. We all exist with a historic cultural location. Now that means that we were born in a particular time, in a particular place, among a particular people, shaped by particular stories. We have a context. And so because we were born at a particular time, in a particular place, among a particular people, shaped by particular stories, so we have a context, we see the world in a particular way. We're predisposed to believe certain things. We're predisposed to interact with the world around us in a particular way. The scriptures speak to this. This is Acts 17, that God has established the boundaries of our habitats, that where we were born, when we were born, among who we were born, being shaped by some stories is part of God's plan so that we could see him. So God has set this all up that we would know him. Nevertheless, based on our historic cultural location, we do interact with ideas and information differently. So even when I say justice, or when you hear the word justice, some of us are like Marxists, socialists, and produces something in us. Some say justice, they're like long overdue. And others, they're like, they're liberal. So we all have a context that shapes how we even interact with that idea. What the scriptures invite us to believe is that justice flows out of the very heart of God. That justice is God's heart to give people what they're due. And the standard of giving people what they're due is the love that exists in his heart, his holiness, his desire for righteousness, and the fact that people are made in his image. And so when we start to apply this idea of justice, it really takes the form of giving people what they're due as it relates to provision, protection, and even punishment. Now, Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he expands our understanding of justice. So Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 to Matthew chapter 9 verse 36, they form what is known as an inclusio. It is a fancy way of saying a bookmark or a summation. Now what summarized is Jesus's earthly ministry, that he went through all of the towns preaching the gospel, teaching and healing the sick. And so you wanna summarize Jesus's earthly ministry, teaching, preaching and healing regarding the gospel, the good news, the announcement of life in his name. Now, in between Matthew chapter four and Matthew chapter nine, you have what is affectionately known as the Sermon on the Mount. Man, I've been falling in love with the Sermon on the Mount, man, for some time now, specifically due to Pastor Brian, who's now in New Orleans getting ready to plant, and Scott McKnight, and his work on the Sermon on the Mount has really been refreshing, and man, it has helped me just see things in a, in a pretty clear way. That in the Sermon on the Mount, you get this presentation of the ethics of Jesus. 
you get this beautiful picture of his vision for life and light of who he is. And at the beginning of that, you have what is known as the Beatitudes. Now, some people would look at the Beatitudes and they see this progressive dynamic. So you start with poor in spirit and you end with persecution and they become these linear mile markers of pursuit. Now, I don't necessarily think that that's the best way to engage with the Beatitudes. In fact, I think that they are really Jesus revisioning what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be accepted by God. And in this acceptance, this announcement of blessing, blessed are these, you actually get this threefold embodiment. You get this blessing attached to the humility of the poor. You get this blessing that's attached to the pursuit of justice and righteousness. You get this blessing that's attached to the creation of peace. You get this blessing that embodies this ethic of humble, peacemaking pursuits of justice, restoratively, to bring people into relationship. So how should we be thinking about justice? <laughs> we should be thinking about justice as core to Jesus's ethics. And as such, it's core to the identity of the people of God. Uh, the, the second question is, what aspect of the conversation might be missing? Um, that's a fair question. Because one, it identifies the fact that this is an ongoing conversation. This is an ongoing conversation. It, it stretches beyond Christian spheres of influence. Everyone is talking about it. What does it look like to do good, to mend what is broken, and to make right what is wrong? And so, in a very real sense, what's missing is a demonstratively different, audaciously clear voice. And that's because in the past, Christians, we aggregately, the church at large, have abdicated our, our space in this conversation. May not be said of this generation, though. But there is another aspect that I, that I think is missing right now. And it is the role of a peacemaker regarding the pursuit of restorative justice. Here's what I mean when I say that. First, what I've been seeing in the midst of all of these conversations is that there's a lot of platform building and profile expanding by saying some things that are honestly really reckless and acting in a way that's really just cavalier. It's pursuing restorative justice, yet leaving a trail of broken relationships and hurting people. We can't say with any degree of integrity that we're pursuing restorative justice while we're leaving a trail of broken relationships. Pursuing restorative justice while leaving a trail of broken relationships doesn't make you a leader. It makes you a liar, okay? And so when we, when we allow the role of peacemaking to have its appropriate place, it pulls us from that. But there's another aspect of of, of this conversation that I, that I think the role of peacemaking in its right place helps us with. So, so, so peace, peace isn't primarily the absence of certain things. 
peace throughout the scriptures defined as shalom is the presence of wholeness. And so what I've seen is this rush towards peace in the context of justice that really is just the absence of conflict. <laughs> it's the absence of tension. It's creating this weird, nebulous, ambiguous space of neutrality while claiming to be on the side of peace. Man, we can't claim to be on the side of peace while advocating destructive ideas or coddling divisive people all under the, the guise of being measured or neutral. Nah, that makes us more coward and hypocrite than measured voice of reason. We gotta return the role of peacemaking to the pursuit of restorative justice because Jesus actually embodies this. So this is Colossians chapter one. So after this excellent poem of declaring who Jesus is, he is the image of the image. Like, oh, so rich, we're getting there. You get to this, this reality that he's delivered us from the domain of darkness through his blood, making peace. Paul says this in Ephesians as well, that after you have him describe our state apart from Jesus, that apart from Jesus, we exist in this state of disbelief, which leads to disobedience, which creates tremendous distance, which is an experience of spiritual deadness. That though that is our state, God being rich in mercy and love sees us and love makes the first move. He moves towards us to restore us in relationship. And he says, you who were far off are being brought near by God by Jesus, who's removed the hostility, becoming our peace. And so, so, so Jesus himself is a peacemaker. Thus, that peacemaking ethic should be present in the pursuit of justice. Now, I think that that truth carries more weight when we see how Jesus not just modeled it and embodied it in the work of the cross, but how he embodied it in the work of building the disciples. Now, this is Matthew chapter 10. Let me read it. Matthew chapter 10 reads like this. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The name of the 12 apostles are these. First Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, that, that list, obviously it's not random, even though the weight and the richness there may not be felt immediately, but it does again come on the heels of the ministry of Jesus and him living out this beautiful ethic and then him calling people to do the same. But it wasn't just a general call. He was going to create these foundational group of people who were going to embody it, express it, champion it, and invite others to do the same. The disciples, the 12 apostles, one of which would betray him, Judas. But the makeup of this band of brothers 
yo, it's doing some work in my heart right now. Think about who we mentioned. You have Simon the Zealot, and you have Matthew the tax collector. Now, Simon the Zealot, he represents this group of people, this social political ideology where they're so passionate about the law and things of God that it would cause them to be aggressive reformers regarding socio-political issues. So its roots were found 150 plus years ago in the Maccabean Revolution. So um, the Jewish people whose history has been knowing oppression, they are occupied by the Greeks. And so you have the Maccabean Revolution to try to forcefully remove that occupation. And so here, from there, you get the, the fringe start of the Zealots, which we see here. They're under Roman oppression now. And so when you see a zealot, you know what's going through their mind. We have to be free from this political oppression and through a particular way. So even the way that they envisioned Messiah was that it would primarily be someone who comes and does work here and now through freedom from this oppression. Now Jesus is going to lift their eyes from just a natural experience, a more excellent one, but he's not going to not do any work in the meantime. He's going to do a lot of work, but he's going to lift their eyes to a more ex excellent experience of what the Messiah is going to be himself. So you have this person who embodies <laughs> a type of anarchy towards the establishment. And sharing the same space with him is Matthew the tax collector. So tax collectors were Jews who curried favor within the establishment. And the way that they curried favor is they essentially were the go-between to get the taxes from their own people. Some of them looked at them like government stooges because your typical tax collector was wicked. They wouldn't just get the taxes from the government, they would get more money than was actually due. So they were double instruments of oppression, if you will. Now, the call of Matthew is powerful. The one who wrote this gospel, we see in Luke, Luke chapter five, that God calls him and he immediately leaves everything. And he is so wrecked by the words of Jesus, by the offer of life, that he changes his old ways. And then he invites Jesus over to his house and he gathers all his friends so that he can hear this powerful truth and be transformed as well. And then the Pharisees get wind of this. They're like, yo, who is this man eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus makes a famous statement where he says, yo, the healthy have no need for a doctor. I've come for the hurting and the broken to restore them. And so in this band of brothers, you have somebody who's like, yo, we need to overthrow the government. <laughs> and you have another person who was being used by the government. Could you just imagine the conversations that took place at that time? These diametrically opposed people having these varying world views and perspectives and Jesus isn't just bringing them into the same room. He's bringing them into the same family. He is forcing them 
to experience what they would then have to go express, which is peace, peacemaking. Peacemaking that shows up in relationships, peacemaking that shows up in systems and structures. So I think what's missing is the role of peacemaking in the pursuit of restorative justice. Okay? What do you think is being minimized? Fair question. I think what's being minimized is how even to pursue justice or to live out the identity of a peacemaker is it something that we do theoretically? It isn't something that we even do aspirationally. It's something that we do experientially. It's something that we do after experiencing something. So, um, Noah, <laughs> we, we got him a Mario Tennis for the Switch, and man, it's fire. Come play me, you could get that work, right? But after playing, he's like, Dad, I wanna play tennis now. I was like, go ahead. You can be like the male version of Serena. Get busy, my brother. And so I've been texting people, uh, trying to uh, figure out how I could find a trader uh, for him, even in the midst of this COVID age, uh, because I don't play tennis. I'm, I've never played tennis. I've never played tennis, not once in my life. Um, and so I can't, I can't be for him what he needs. I can't give him an experience that I've never actually experienced. Does that make sense? We know that. We can't give away that which we've never really experienced. So what I think is minimized right now is actually experiencing the source that moves us to pursue justice, that moves us to be peacemakers. The source is the love of Jesus. It's experiencing God's love for us. So this is Ephesians. It says the, the redemptive plan of history is that God would love these disobedient people well in an enduring fashion. And when, when that experience is rooted in our heart, it really does change the way that we interact with people. What we start to see is this elaborate experience of love is really hard to quantify, but it can be captured like this. Jesus loves the person that I like the least more than I love the person I love the most. Like his love is great, it's grand, and it dwarfs my ability every single time. And when I rest in it, when I see that he loves even those who I would consider the least of these, it activates me in a different way. What practical habits can help us in this task? And the task of justice? Cool. Well, so since I, since I think that what is missing from the conversation is peacemaking, I'm gonna focus on the peacemaking portion um, in particular, and I know the other portions we'll deal with next week and the week um, to come. But I think that some practical ways to increase our peacemaking is by reclaiming 
the necessity of presence. So, so think about this. Let's go back to this friendship piece, the disciples, Matthew, the tax collector, Simon the Zealot, all in the same space. Could you imagine, let's say they're not hanging together one day, they're not following Jesus, they're not walking with him in the moment, they're doing their own thing. And Simon is sitting with his friends and his friends start to rail on tax collectors. Man, those tax collectors, man, they're like Uncle Tom's. What do you think would activate in, in Simon's heart? What would activate in his heart is a new perspective because he has relationship with Matthew. It would alter the way that he engages with people and the way that he sees tax collectors. And I think that we don't make peace often because we assume the worst in people and we're comfortable with brokenness. And honestly, we're distant. We're distant, emotionally or physically distant. Presence closes the gap. So, so I would say the, the first practical thing is like, you know, like recovering, reclaiming the need for presence. Now I know that's even hard in this socially distanced age, but though we may not be able to physically engage with everybody right now, there are phones, there are emails, and we can still share stories together and be present in a particular way. The last, I would say, is hitting me differently, and it is reclaiming the power of prayer as it relates to being a peacemaker. So after Paul talks about just how God has made peace, not just vertically, but horizontally between people, he goes into this prayer, Ephesians chapter three, it reads like this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, that to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he goes on to this doxology, now onto him who's able to do far more exceedingly abundantly than we could ever hope, imagine, or dream, or ask for. But what's fascinating to me is, immediately after talking about the scope of the work of Jesus, in making peace, connecting that with our identity as peacemakers, he goes with the food. He's like, yo, that work, understanding, embodying, experiencing it, expressing it, it's so difficult that we need to pray. We need to ask God to strengthen us to wrap our minds around the love of God so much so it would transform and shape our hearts in the here and now. And what I've seen conversationally is often the hardness of heart that's associated with refusing to enter into a space of peacemaking 
that shows up with now settling for a distorted view of justice and pursuing it can be tied to an absence of prayer. That we don't ask God for help to do that which is absolutely supernatural, which is to treat people who are naturally enemies as family, which is to seek out the well-being, the wholeness of all people, not just those who exist in our historical, cultural narrative. We recenter that, the role of prayer, we recapture that, and shape in our hearts. I think it sets us up well. Hopefully that was helpful. Hopefully it was encouraging. Save this, use this, come back to this. I know I do. And in that space, I actually want to pray for us. God, thank you. We have the freedom to engage with you. That you aren't bashful with your mind or your heart. You're very clear. Would we not hesitate in fighting for that same level of clarity? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.